give you an example. Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is Bristol's only FTSE 100 company based in our city. Yeah. They contributed £75 to the One Child Per Tree programme, yeah. which for a company that, you know, their market capitalisation is in the billions and billions. £75 is, uh, that's, uh, that's a very shockingly low number. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. In November 2018, Bristol Mayor Martin Rees and city councillors declared a climate emergency, and they launched the Mayor's Climate Emergency Action Plan. They were the first to do this in the UK, and now 435 councils have followed suit. So, in this episode of Bristol Unpacked, we talk to the member for Climate, Ecology and Sustainable Growth, Councillor Afzal Shah. Is Bristol a leading light in the Green Revolution, or is this just a PR stunt? Have a listen and make your own mind up. You're my local councillor in Eastern, and also we went to school together, didn't we? Yes, we did go to school together um, several decades ago. Many uh, ago, yeah. Time go very quickly, and uh, yes, uh, privileged to be council for Eastern Ward. You've been quite connected to the area for a long time, haven't you? Your family, your dad's very well known in the area. When did you start as a councillor in Eastern? Twenty thirteen, Neil. Seven years, eight, eight years then. Crikey, eight years this May. Do you have more grey hairs since you've been doing it? <laughs> Infinitely more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think for you, I think it's interesting being an Eastern councillor because you you are one of the only. BME, black and ethnic minority politicians in Bristol, certainly one of the only British-Pakistani politicians. How, how many How many in the city? Uh, British-Pakistani elected representatives, uh, I am the only one. You're the um, only one? Okay, yes. yeah. Eastern Ward, probably the most diverse, isn't it, in the city. Would you say that you being who you are is a benefit or can it sometimes be a hindrance? So Eastern Ward is definitely one of the most diverse wards. First moved to Eastern in 1983. Having grown up here, went to Whitehall Primary School, attended the local mosque. Uh, I think I'm part and parcel and part of the fabric of Eastern, actually, and part of the story of Eastern. Coming from South Asian heritage, it does give me a particular understanding of the area. Uh, but interestingly, actually, if you look at the changing demographics in Eastern, it has unquestionably become a lot more gentrified so whilst it is very diverse it's not as diverse as it used to be well no i mean i say you know i've lived in and around the area majority of my life moved away and then come back but we've been here for 14 years i think in this house and our road has changed yeah significantly there's a lot more white people than there used to be probably maybe more middle class people than there were kerry mccarthy in a recent speech in Parliament did actually allude to the fact that Eastern Ward has seen the highest house price inflation anywhere in the UK. And that obviously brings with it certain challenges. Yes, Eastern has changed, especially you know, certain parts of Eastern. No matter who has actually moved into the area, I'm here to represent everybody. There's a gentleman who contacted me a few weeks ago, quite well highlighted in the local media, who's actually being forced out of his tenanted property run by a housing association. If he's forced out there, that too in the middle of a pandemic, he can't afford to live in Eastern. He will have to leave the area. 
It's just yeah. um, simply not within the reach of uh, people on what we would call the average wage. And it's a tricky situation, isn't it, whereby you've got – there's a number of sort of vested interests that you have to juggle and marry. There are people – we talk about the negative effects of gentrification, but if you do own a house in Easton, you're lucky enough to have bought at the right time, you could do very nicely out of it. There obviously are people that have bought um, from outside – you know, there's a high percentage of people coming in from, from London, particularly Greenbank Way. You also have lots of landlords that own big housing stock with private renters. And they do very nicely out of gentrification as well. And many of them are local. And I think sometimes that's the part of this conversation that people forget, that it kind of stays at sourdough bread and avocados. But actually, there are local people from Eastern that me and you would both know that own a swathe of housing stock. I guess my question is, having to marry all those different factions up in your head and your role maintaining neutrality is a challenge. And is it something that you enjoy? Neil, I've seen you many a time buying smashed avocados in Matterfield <laughs> Uh, or in the sweet mart, you know, and I've seen you buying artisan bread in the uh, yeah, in the bakers on yeah. the uh, side of St Mark's Road, but we won't yeah. talk about that, will we? No, 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 um, no, no. no it's, it, it, it really is an absolute pleasure. It's a privilege to serve the local area. Wanted to become a uh, a local councillor. It was specifically for Easton. I was yeah. initially offered uh, other wards, and I stuck to my guns and said it would have to be Easton. Whether it's working with local residents to save the uh, Greenback pub, where it's yeah. myself and my colleague Ruth securing £62,000 of community infrastructure levy money for St. Mark's Road, whether it's the work that we've done on the Church Road end side to save the local post office. It's a real privilege. In the same way, we have campaigned very strenuously to ensure that we've got uh, affordable housing from the chocolate factory developers when they did not have to. I mean, as we campaigned and campaigned, we managed to get a relatively significant amount of affordable housing guaranteed. You've listed the stuff that you've done and achieved, and and you know quite quite rightly. But obviously, I, I do know for yourself, being South Asian, being British Pakistani, there might be an expectation from members of the community for you to lean one way or the other. But you know, your role is to represent everybody. So. Have there been any situations where you feel, I don't know, kind of pressurised a bit? Is it easy for you to keep your kind of head and your judgment? I think about a good example, obviously, at the moment, which has been playing out. You know, I've made a film about it, which you were in. And St. Mark's Road, the issue to do with pedestrianisation, it sort of polarised sections of the community. I've been quite watchful of your response to that. To be honest, without blowing smoke up your ass, quite quite impressed with how you managed to keep keep that sort of balance in check is that something that's natural to you Afsal, or is that something that you have to work on i think it's a bit of both so it's the way that i've been raised you know um and then there's another side to me which is about pragmatism uh trying to find the best in a situation and i know there's a lot of pressure regarding St. Mark's road uh, mm-hmm. what's right isn't always popular what's popular isn't always right and it's yeah. not just a case of who shouts the loudest is the person that we have to necessarily uh, listen to. You know, they are not the strongest advocates. I think we need to look at something with cool heads and yeah. with a, a way mature approach. And that's why what I've said about St. Mark's Road is we can get something good at this. I've had some of the, um, some of the businesses there say, look, just hand that money back to central government. 
we don't want that funding coming to us. It's not that dissimilar to a journalist, really. People expect me, because I'm local to, you know, I've had it here, to, to take a side. And, and I can't and sort of refuse to, but, you know, in, what I might think personally is different than what I do in my role as a journalist. And it's the same thing for you as a politician, isn't it? You you have to keep that neutrality. And I don't think people understand sometimes how difficult that is. Councillors get knocked and get a hard time, but that is something that takes patience, perseverance, takes a calm, cool head. I guess I, I'm interested to know if that's something that is easy for you. So some of that rhetoric is highly irresponsible and I have to bite my tongue sometimes because you can also see um, you can also see a bit of mischief making in the background. Sometimes people like to uh, people like to spice things up, shall we say? And I use that word quite lightly because I know Sweet Mart is uh, you know, they've got many spices there, but <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. But I have reassured every side and said, "Look, let's just sit down, right." Not physically, but you know, virtually. Mm-hmm. Let's sit down and let's come up with something. But surely, uh, you know, we can send man to the moon in 1969. Here we are five decades on. And we can't even come together. I mean, Elon Musk is talking about sending people to Mars. Yet here in Eastern, we can't seem to be yeah, right. yeah. uh, able to come together to actually look at an opportunity to improve, right? St. Mark's Road. Yeah. So I hear the concerns that for many people, any discussion about banning cars can be very emotive, right? Because yeah. people are very attached to their cars. On the other hand, I think that we've got to look at, you know, what is sustainable? How do we open up the street to the local community? And it's quite interesting that when you do look at some of the images that are being shared, they do feature the Grand Iftar. So the Grand Iftar is an annual event which takes place on St. Mark's Road in Easton. And it's where Muslims join together to break the fast during the holy month of Ramadan. And in Eastern, all the different faith groups across the city, all demographics come together to celebrate and have food. You know, I think it's the biggest street party of its kind in the UK. We've had over 6,000 guests at the last one. But, you know, what I've said to them is that if you look at the Grand Iftar images, they do show a pedestrianised road. So so I think it's worth bearing in mind. I mean, what what I feel is that there is an opportunity to look at how we can open up the street to the communities. Because I can relate to this, because I don't do lots of journalism in my local area. Mm. I find that particularly difficult. After I made that film, I was walking down to St. Mark's Road. People wanted to stop and talk to me. I I didn't go out the ice for a couple of days because I felt a bit self-conscious, you know? I guess what I can say to people is when I'm talking to them and they're saying they're they're expressing their concerns, and I say, that's fine, I hear you. I moved into the area almost four decades ago. So it's not that I just moved into the area a couple of years ago and I'm trying to come down here and and you know, tear up the script, completely radical. There was a comment made by one individual on social media who said, let's save the mosque. Save the mosque from what? You know, we're not going to close the mosque down. This is North Korea. You know, it, it's not a case <laughs> yeah. of, you know, this is not China targeting Uyghur Muslims <laughs> you know, yeah. in persecution. I mean, I'm a Muslim myself. So I just yeah. think, you know, people got to be extremely careful about the rhetoric that they use on all sides. But, you know, at the same time, I recognise the immense the immense contribution from our local faith establishments, from, from the mosque on St. Mark's Road. I mean, St. Mark's Road is just, I'll I, I tell you what's so special about it, Neil. You've got a mosque, you've got a church to stop, you've got a pub, you've got a synagogue, literally a stone's throw away, you know, just on Bannerman's Road. It's a great street, it's a great street. 
the irony is there's been loads of changes that have made it good and people that are probably opposed to the changes now were those that were central to the changes before. That is yeah. you know, part and parcel of the fabric of the street and what makes it so special. Congratulations to you for your new role. You are now the member for Climate, Ecology and Sustainable Growth. That's quite wordy. In a nutshell, and I do mean a nutshell because I know you politicians like to talk, what does that mean and what is your role? Many people would say it's COVID, but actually the biggest threat facing mankind is the climate crisis. So my position is as a lead member for the council and I'm also co-chair of the One City Environmental Group, you know, which is about collaboration between the public sector, private sector and third sector organisations because we can't do this on our own. Ecology, as you are aware, Neil, I'm sure that um, our ecology, our flora, our fauna is under threat and about a third of what we eat would simply not be produced were it not for pollinators. Many of yeah. our plant and bird species and mammals are actually under threat. Uh, about 40% of native mammals in this country have already become extinct in recent years. In November 2018, this is where this kind of started. Bristol Mayor announced a climate emergency and launched the Mayor's Climate Emergency Action Plan. The first to do in the country, I think, Bristol. 435 councils followed. So this is quite a big role, quite a big job for you. Carbon emissions have been reduced by 33% since 2005. By 2030, it's like a £1 billion programme of investment to get to net zero carbon dioxide by 2030. That's quite ambitious. Uh, Is that a realistic target? And you in your particular role, what kind of experience and qualifications do you have to take this quite mammoth task on and spearhead it? I've had my own business, always had a very strong interest in the work which we can undertake as a um, as a steward. We are custodians, so from a religious perspective, I was taught ever since I was a child that it is our responsibility to ensure that we look after this planet. Ever since I was a young person, attended meetings with Friends of the Earth, with Greenpeace as well, I've always taken a very strong interest in issues about water conservation, especially in Pakistan. I have Mm -hmm. campaigned over there. I've been to Parliament ever since I was a teenager. The reason I ask that question is clearly this is something that you are passionate about. about. But sometimes in politics, people do kind of move around sort of positions and get kind of parliamentary level and also local council level. Sometimes you get moved into a new remit, which isn't necessarily somebody's specialism. But you're saying this is something that is a good fit for you. This is something that I've been really passionate about, Neil. And I also believe that I bring an international lens to this. If you have a look, the whole narrative around climate crisis, climate change, you'll see that it's skewed towards a very particular demographic. You very know, very white, white middle class, isn't it? Very, I was white, gonna, very, was, very yeah, middle class. Yeah. And actually those countries and those communities that are on the front line of this, uh, yeah. especially the global south, there's sometimes, um, I would say that the media... Um, doesn't really take much notice of people from those communities. You look at climate migration, that's part of Bristol's yeah. story in terms of many of the communities that have, have settled in Bristol. I do bring an international lens. I understand what's going on around the world. You asked about the uh, climate change targets that we have. Yeah, let's come back to that. For those that listen that don't understand, in Bristol there are a number of what they call one-city boards. One is the one-city climate strategy for Bristol, 
£250,000 were committed to develop this strategy. That was released in February 2020, 74 pages long. I did have a look at it. I didn't read it all. It looks great. It looks glossy. There's a great kind of vision to it. That's a kind of working document from here on in, which you chair, you're going to be driving some of this forward. So a couple of key questions on that. What's happened to date? And what, what are the biggest initiatives on the horizon? So what I would say is that the government have a target of 2050. We in Bristol have a target of 2030. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and it's good to be ambitious. That's a very impressive target. Uh, a lot of cities up and down the country are actually looking towards Bristol, whether it's the Climate Emergency Declaration, the Ecological Emergency Declaration, whether it's the One City Approach that we're doing, you know, working collaboratively. I recently announced a paper at Cabinet about the SEEP project. With that, we're also trying to tap into community activism. We've got almost a quarter million pounds worth of community grants there, Neil, because yeah. we appreciate that resource really is critical to this. We're not expecting people going on fumes of passion alone. You can't just give somebody a pat on the back and say, yeah, that's great. Please do this. We realize that it's got to be, there's got to be resource. But it's great when you've got a number of organizations in the city, whether it's the universities, whether it's businesses, whether it's third sector organizations, whether it's faith groups, uh, you know, committing to, to be part of that. Because we recognize we can't do it on our own. Yeah, it's a kind of city-wide approach to this, isn't it? So the strategy's been written, the board has been selected, it's meeting. What are the key specific, because I know transport's not your role, that's more Kai, isn't it? Kai that Dad, is well, for, 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 for yourself, what, what are the kind of, uh, in the next year, what are the kind of key tangible targets? But some, some of the targets first, Neil, and some of the milestones. So just last year, Bristol City Council's auditor signed off that our direct carbon footprint was reduced by 9% in one year. That's okay. pretty impressive, 9% yeah. in one year. And we will continue doing that. We're also looking at our supply chain. Yeah. You know, Bristol City Council has procurement and tendering. We work mm-hmm. with a lot of suppliers and partner organisations. We want to work with them to see how they too can reduce their carbon footprint. We've got a draft advertising policy is also looking at how we can use advertising in the city to help us actually decarbonise. Just going to stop the conversation there for a minute to talk to you about the cable. In the 24th print edition, which is out now, there is a big section on climate and environmental emergency, various articles from different perspectives. So it's something that's really important to us and we believe that it is effectively the defining issue of our time. So if you want to hear more interviews like this, have more articles in print then do join the bristol cable chuck a pound in two pound five pound ten pound whatever you can afford if you go to the website www.bristolcable.org you can find out how you can do that back to the chat and you've only been in this role since november correct yes yeah so so you can't sort of speak it's not been on your watch for the whole time but what some some of the criticisms have been that there's been quite a lot of, you know, big headline grabbing statements and kind of climate emergency. We're going to do this, you know, this allowed and pray. And I think maybe some people on the sort of political opposition, perhaps in the Green Party or other sort of activists would say that it feels a bit more shiny, but maybe not enough substance. How would you respond to that? Well, we've committed over over four million pounds to the SEEP strategy That's over the next few years. So we're putting resource we are currently um, the 
closing date was the 4th of February. So I'm sorry, Neil, but you couldn't have, because we're, we're past the cutoff date, you can't now mm-hmm. apply for that job in, in terms of engagement managers for climate. So, so the, there's four posts, four different posts that we're hiring you know, to actually help us deliver our, our aims and focusing on our strategy. We are um, putting resource into training our staff within Bristol. So, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want a list of everything you're doing because that's just boring for people to listen to. But what? But your what? What, what is <laughs> you your? You did ask me. What, what, yeah, yeah, no, no. What, when I asked you what you thought about that, that what, you know, that statement itself, do, do you think that's unfair? Yeah, I, I mean, so it's very easy to complain as a spectator, but come and be part of the solution and actually look look at the work. And there's some incredible work going on in the city. One of the other resources that we've got, Neil, is we've got a climate advice hub. So it's a portal that anybody can actually log into mm-hmm. and it will give uh, you know, very good, sensible advice. Okay, so, some of this, some of, so you think the criticisms aren't fair. You are, you are doing things, you're setting up, you know, jobs are being advertised, people are in post, there's a strategy, you've got kind of various things you're working on, so that's unfair. Do you think it's quite difficult for the Green Party that obviously their whole kind of sole focus, and, and we got obviously we got elections coming up in May, haven't we? But we're kind of not in the purity thing yet, so we can be a bit more frank. Is it quite difficult for them to see Labour moving on green issues? Because I suppose it kind of negates their what is their Trump card a bit, and obviously there's been a bit of back and forth on Twitter for those that don't know this week between Bristol Labour and Bristol Green over cycling lanes and this kind of so it feels like we're getting into this you know what is a big big topic and a big issue in Bristol we're getting into electioneering campaigning a little bit slowly and that will start to increase as, as the weeks progress towards May but it must be quite difficult for the Greens because they were probably thinking well hang on a minute we started all this why why are you you know you're taking credit for the sort of stuff that that, that we pioneered so I understand one of the Green candidates is objecting to a cycle lane in Central Ward, which I find quite ironic. But actually, no, um, climate change, climate emergency, this is everybody's business. Every single person, whether you're a politician or not a politician, should be involved in doing their bit. Whether that means that you start small or whether that you feel so passionate that you engage politically, it should be on everybody's radar, whether you're Conservative, whether you're Lib Dem, whether you're Labour, whether you're Green. But obviously, I mean, Labour is the original Green Party. Uh, we, <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah, go on. Yeah. Why do you say that? Why are they the original Green Party? I mean, when we talk about sustainability, yeah. if you look at the roots of the Labour Party, it was there to to protect, you know, the common man and woman's interests, yeah. right? And, you know, right at the core of climate change, it's about social justice. Climate justice and social justice go hand in hand. So they should be happy then, really, that if the Green Party, I know they're making inroads in Bristol, but they should be happy that the Labour Party are focusing on those issues that they care about. Absolutely. It should be the number one agenda from nurseries into schools right through to universities. And it's something which we which should be part of everyday life. I mean, I know that you live in Eastern Ward and I'm sure when you use the bus on Church Road, then that's one of our 77 biomethane buses that Councillor Kai did helped first bus cure some local funding so where do you think that criticism's coming from then because some i i think the sense i think is that there's what they would call greenwashing which i didn't really know what that meant but apparently it means sort of making a show about being 
seen to be doing something because it's a good look now, isn't it? Lots of businesses, for example, everyone's kind of talking about green energy and green economy. And that's been something that's been levied at the council. I think if I want to deviate that a little bit to the the One City Board and, you know, the Bristol Leap, which is a, a body that's unifying business to invest in these issues, some of those big corporate partners are really jumping on this. Is there is there a concern that it's a kind of PR look, that it is what they would say greenwashing? And how do you determine whether the intentions are genuine? So many firms, Neil, as you'll be aware, have corporate social responsibility budgets. And I think the key thing is whether you're a small business, an SME, actually that term is misleading because SMEs provide um, the vast majority of, uh, of employment in this country. Uh, but whether you're a small business or a large multinational business, every business should have some level of uh, auditing taking place in terms of their green credentials, in terms of their green commitment. What form that takes place, that's something that, that we can discuss another time, but it really is important that that commitment is done in the correct way. But I was just saying about the bus with those no, 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 no. Stay on there. So don't go on about the bus. I want to stay on this bit. So, so for, as far as you're concerned, if they're happy to be involved, then it, it doesn't really matter whether you know you can't look in somebody's heart and decide what's sincere or what isn't. At the end of the day, if they're they are a business and a corporate organisation that that are getting involved in investing money into the city, investing money into green economies, then that is a good thing. Period. So my concern is in the middle of a pandemic. Our economy has contracted by 11.5%, according to the Chancellor. Um, My concern is that actually the budgets for decarbonisation and for cutting carbon footprint for small businesses might actually be overlooked somewhat because obviously a lot of businesses are just fighting for survival. So it really is important that that we don't lose sight of that. That really is critical. But um, I'll give you an example. Hargreaves Lansdowne, which is Bristol's only FTSE 100 company based in our city, yeah, they contributed £75 to the One Child Per Tree programme, yeah. which for a company that, you know, their market capitalisation is in the billions and billions, £75 yeah. is, uh, that's, uh, that's a very shockingly low number. Um, mm-hmm. So I just feel that, that, that there's got to be sincerity if yeah. you're a larger organisation doing phenomenally well, such as Hargreaves Lansdowne, then you should be expected to make a greater contribution. Yeah. And I just want to see some more transparency in that. Yeah, understood. So if the bigger the business they are, the more they should contribute, and some are more than others. Is it, you know, and as you'd made the point that we are in this sort of odd, strange post-COVID world where we don't quite know where we're going to be, and, you know, clearly... Are we in a uh, post-COVID you know, world? Well, we're not. We're, we're, we will be at some point in the postcode where we don't know in terms of you know the financial situation, you know, nationally and in the city. So it would be foolhardy not to link up with business. But would that be one of the criticisms that you know we are talking about Labour Party here? Because I think sometimes when we talk about this one city approach, which is like very business friendly, business wester in and out of city hall every five minutes, that that actually sounds like a Conservative Party thing, doesn't it? Not a Labour Party. Is is that something that sits comfortably with you? It's interesting that you mentioned the Conservative Party there, Neil. They are the party of austerity. They have absolutely decimated town hall budgets up and down the country. And most of those town halls are Labour-run. 
So we are expected to do more with less and less resource every year. And it is really critical that we do work with our businesses because they do provide a lot of employment within the city. Um, yeah. We do have responsibilities too. So it's a collaborative approach. And it's about leadership too. We alone, as a local authority, we cannot deliver everything. We cannot set about trying to achieve our targets for massively reducing... And, it, and in fairness, so to jump in, it is a criticism that traditionally, you know, we've grown up in the city that the council and Bristol has been accused of not being as proactive and innovative and as connected to the whole of the city and businesses and has been slow to develop. So, you know, now that is happening, there is criticism come as well. And I guess you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Right, I want to move on from that and I will talk about some specifics. So one of the most effective ways to bring down emissions is to retrofit homes. So we've got a 35% private renters in your ward in Eastern, which is 10% above Bristol's. How are we going to convince landlords to invest and to retrofit their homes? 30% of emissions come from buildings. So this is a real key, key thing. How, how can we do that? I'd say, well, from my understanding, it's actually above 30%. It's closer to about 40%. 35 um, is what I read, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. But we can agree to meet in the middle then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah, but, you know, point being, what what can you do in your role to, to sort of persuade, you know, bearing in mind there's a lot of houses in Eastern that they don't, they barely will, even put yeah. a lick of paint in. Uh, so it is an investment. Um, as we've alluded to, property prices have gone through the roof. Um, and absolutely, it's in their long-term interest. A, it's great for the environment, but it's great for the pocket too. Uh, yeah. It will save save money. And it will bring down energy prices for them. You know, if it's saving them money, if it's great for their pocket... It, yeah, but they're not paying the energies. There are people who rent them are paying them. In my experience, landlords are reluctant to spend anything on their properties, aren't they, usually? Honestly, I mean, some properties, not so much now, because obviously we've we've ensured that we've had we've licensed properties. Uh, yeah, in, in Eastern in, in particular, haven't you? Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. but, but before the discretionary licensing scheme uh, in Eastern, I saw a number of properties. They were in... All I can say is, you know, in a very shameful condition, they're completely yeah. exploitative. So I think, uh, A, it, it is in their interest. It's an investment long term. It saves them money, so it's great for their pockets. And most importantly, whilst they're doing that, it's great for the environment. And sure. I think that, that we've got to change the mindset. That, yeah. you know, people just need to understand it's it's a long term investment. And a collective approach, yeah. And also, Neil, we do have grants now. We've got the Green Home Grants schemes. But the problem with that is that, there is a lot of demand, but, you know, can we satisfy that demand? And I don't think that the government appreciate that actually delivery really is critical. Yeah. Let me just jump in then. On the on the retrofitting houses, which is a key thing, in July 2019, the mayor and the council pledged to retrofit 7,000 homes per year. How many have they done? I'm sure I can find out for you tomorrow, Neil. Okay, <laughs> no problem, no problem. I don't say too tired over that. Okay, well, we'll 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 come back to that with um with with things like charging points for electric vehicles under the new scheme from the Department for Transport. Is that something that we're kind of on the way to bringing more to the city? Yeah, I mean, there's one not far from your home. If you walk just up the road, take a right, just a, a stone's throw away from your house. Um, yeah, don't give my dress out, but go on. Yeah. No. <laughs> I do that, yeah. Carry yeah, on. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is that we are ensuring that green infrastructure is in place. Yeah. It does take time and it takes resource, but we are committed to that. I'm really pleased that Bristol is 
an early adapter in terms of this kind of technology. And I see many people now charging their electric cars around the ward and around different parts of the city. Yeah. And we're doing that for taxis as well. But yeah. going back to the retrofitting homes, that will be a real boom for jobs as well. Yeah. With heating engineers, plumbers, builders, bricklayers. I mean, these are quality jobs. These are yeah. high quality jobs, uh, apprenticeships. And it's exactly the kind of program that we need to kickstart the economy post-COVID. Great. And that was one of my questions I want to ask you about. How do we rebuild our local economy after COVID in a sort of greener way and in a fairer way? Because it's a good opportunity to do that now, isn't it? Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And I can tell you that the mayor and my fellow cabinet members, they are having conversations with further education colleges as well to make sure that we are putting into place those opportunities in terms of training. Because your know, skills and training really is critical to that, getting people trained up. But uh, recycling, Bristolians, I think, are pretty good recyclers. You know, I think that people in the city, you know, it's something that, that, you know, certainly Bristol West, most definitely in your ward, people do a lot. Plastic is a particular problem, I know. Where does all our recycling end up? And are we on top of that? Bristol residents actually do recycle a lot. Yeah. Bristolians are amongst the biggest recyclers in the UK. Yeah, yeah. One of the challenges that we've got, not far from here, is Barton Hill. And there's a yeah. lot of high-rises, for example, in Barton Hill. Can yeah. we ensure higher rates of recycling in high-rises? And that's okay. not just something that we're grappling with. That's something that you know, the issue, yeah. up and down the yeah. country are actually grappling with. Uh, the food waste, Neil. Um, yeah. Have you heard of Genico? Yeah. Yeah. Right, so a lot of food waste went to Genico in terms of recycling over there in their plant. Um, but there is a lot more which we can do sure. in, in terms of recycling. And that's one, one of the key things that uh, why I feel it's very important to engage mm-hmm. children. Because children, yeah. call it pester power, call it education, they will pull their parents up. Um, yeah. And I think it's about making... Um, you know, just having that conversation within families and socially unacceptable uh, not to recycle as much as possible. I mean, I can remember growing setting up... Setting that culture, North- isn't it? Setting that culture in place. Bristol Airport, there's been quite a recent U-turn by Mayor Marvin Rees in supporting North Somerset's decision to reject the application. What led to that change of heart? I don't know if you've had conversations. This was a collaborative approach. Obviously, that's switched fairly recently. Where did that come from and why? Some people call it Bristol Airport. I call it Lulzgate. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah. not even in Bristol. Sure. Uh, it is actually yeah. in North Somerset. So yeah. we are, you know, we appreciate that. Um, no why the change though? Why do you, we, we know we know where it is. We know what it's called. Why, why, why the U-turn? And is it the right decision? You back it? I I think the decision is, is correct. That, uh, we have to, a, look at green infrastructure at airports. We have to look at the conscious decisions that we make um, as consumers. I mean, even though I've got family abroad, Neil, I've not been abroad for over three years, and that's because uh, when my relatives passed away. So, so I think that we've got to look at our own carbon footprints and also look at staycations as well. And the uh, the new normal, Zoom, Teams, you know, different types of technology means that increasingly we can work from home we don't need to attend meetings in a physical environment yeah but why, why let me just answer that question why do you think there's been a u-turn 
well, when you say U-turn, can you just explain what you mean? Well, by the, the, the mayor has just there changed. specific comments by the mayor before that the mayor was explicitly supporting? Well, I think he came out, didn't he, and said he was in favour of it and then, then came out and said he wasn't in favour of it. I think it's just... Uh, I mean, well, I'm mean, you know, not having to go about it. I'm is, just interested to know what, why, why the change, yeah, why the change, yeah, yeah. So, so I've spoken to the unions. Uh, I, you know, so we appreciate that there are hundreds of people whose family members actually work at Bristol Airport. Mm-hmm. So, what happens at Bristol International Airport is actually pretty important for us. It's also pretty important for many people in South Bristol because of employment. We don't want to put anyone's jobs at risk, so we do appreciate, but. Those conversations need to be taking place yeah. in terms of how we can... Because it could uh, still happen, couldn't it? Regardless of what the council and the mayor decide, you know, it may well still happen. Yeah, so I respect the fact that, that it's not within our gift. That is yeah. uh, up to North Somerset councillors, uh, planning inspector, ultimately. Yeah. So if it does go ahead, that decision lies with North Somerset. But we can't forget the fact that there are many people from Bristol who do work at the airport. So sure. what conversations can we have to talk about upskilling? You know, we've spoken about energy and stuff like that. Uh, obviously the, you know, the, the big kind of massive uh, thing that's happened in the last sort of couple of months. And I'm very aware that this was something that was inherited by labor, the Bristol energy losing 35 million pounds. That's something that, you know, let's be honest, any political party or any politician that's been involved in decision making around this you know hasn't necessarily come out in this in good light is that was owing to legacy neil right we inherited that from the previous administration mm. so we we worked with it we also wanted to i mean that's true but you did st- i mean you know you have to take some responsibility you did you did stick it out for some time and let it kind of ride you know, I, I, you know, I'm being honest and saying that yes, that was something that was inherited, was something that started through George, was voted for by people that are a bit opposing it now. I totally get that argument, but at the same time, could have pulled out sooner. I think anyone listening that's just a kind of normal person who's a normal voting resident that's not in the political bubble will look at that, regardless of who's blaming who, and say, "That's you know, that's my money." That's our council tax. That's what we pay. And, you know, and one thing I think that, that I, and I say this as not a journalist, as a Bristol resident, as a Bristolian, when I hear managing directors getting paid, you know, £228,000 a year and a payout of almost £100,000 after losing £35 million, I find that outrageous. And, and I think I find that outrageous for, uh, you know, somebody, you know, if if you're talking politically, I, would, I just wouldn't expect that. I wouldn't expect that from a from a Labour Party, I would expect that, you know, somebody on that kind of money to then get a payout. And I think it's that stuff that leaves a bitter taste in the mouth of Bristolians. And let's not get into the party political of who's to blame and who wasn't. You know, you're all culpable in that on all sides of the house. How can we rebuild trust that we can trust where our money's going to go? So we are custodians um, of that money. And, uh, of course, we have to work within the rules, regulations and directives. And um, I think having aims such as increasing social value policy, trying to protect those who are the most disadvantaged in society, people who have been struggling with fuel poverty, promoting energy which is greener, sustainable forms and not fossil fuels, I think that is something that, uh, is very admirable 
I think nobody can question our motives on that. Unfortunately, what's changed, Neil, is in the energy markets because of shale gas and some of the other global commodities markets. They've really shifted the whole energy market on its head. So it's very difficult when you're a local authority um, trying to do the best you can for your uh, your local residents. But you know, global seismic events really are, are shifting shifting the markets globally. And there's an argument to say that councils shouldn't really be involved in private functioning. You know, we obviously got Gorham Housing and stuff now that maybe this is a red flag for councils not to, you know, dive into things like the energy markets without having that knowledge and expertise. Then we would be accused of being too risk averse. On the other hand, because we've had our budgets shredded immensely over the whole decade of austerity, we then have to look at innovative solutions to generate income. And ultimately, what, what are we doing? I mean, you know, the whole aim is ultimately to maintain quality frontline services. Yeah. It's to keep our libraries open. It's to um, yeah, but, but that's the point, isn't it? It's those things that are being cut. The the cuts coming from from national government has a huge amount of impact. But obviously, decisions have to be made locally, and things have to be stripped and cut. And we understand that, which is why it makes it more difficult when that's why we got when you hear when you hear. Hang on one second. It makes it more difficult when you hear that much money being wasted and you know consultants being paid ridiculous amounts of money on a daily basis, managing directors being paid off for hundred grand when you failed. Those are the things that make people angry. Some of that you was know, caused by your old school friend, Sajid Javid. It was, yeah. He was the most famous politician from our schools, isn't he? I think that, yeah. you're the, the second most famous, I think, but just, just, know, just behind Sajid. But no, in, in all seriousness, that we have had that. And I do think that sometimes when people are quick to point fingers, in general, that they don't you know, always see when your hands are tied Budgets are cut from national government and the impact that, you know, you're dealt a difficult hand and you're, you're all trying to do the best that you can do. It's not an easy job. It's not particularly well paid, particularly being a councillor, that people don't always see and understand that. So I guess my thing is, how can we as a city? And I know something that the mayor is keen to do to link in with other, particularly Labour mayors uh, in the northern cities, is how can we start to effectively lobby and push national government to start to respect start to fund start to support uh, cities and regions more effectively that's a very good question and i wish that you and i'm sure that you did ask that um um less than a year and a half ago when the last election took place yeah we've still got a um a tory government that uh, has a track record of uh, slashing uh, town hall budgets left right and center um, and I think that um, sometimes they, there was a bit of, of selective amnesia. I think you, people just you need to remember who is responsible. And with May coming up, people obviously got big decisions to make. That's the local council you elections. May or the May? Uh, May, the month of May. Oh, so you've got council elections, you've got you know mayoral elections, you've got metro mayoral elections, a lot of things to for people to think and about. And police and crime commissioners, yeah. And police and crime commissioners, yeah. So that's like a lot of boxes to be ticking. 
in the booth. I, I wish you good luck, Afsal. I think some people, you know, you are my old school friend, so some people might have thought I'd given you an easy ride, but hopefully I've asked some challenging questions as well. <laughs> you know, I know you personally from the area, and, and I know that you're somebody who works exceptionally hard. People don't realise that councillors don't get paid very much, and I, I see you up and down around here talking to people, being involved, supporting people, and I know that you're very well respected for that. You're somebody that very much gets their hands dirty. So full respect for you. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for being um, honest and open and frank in, in, in any sort of questions I've asked you. Uh, is there anything you want to ask me Well, when we finish? Have you ever thought about stepping up? In, in politics or just in yeah. general? No, no, in, in terms of... Uh, in politics. In protests, yeah. L- local political representation. I don't know. I've never, yeah. I mean, obviously I've got a background in called community activism development before I came into journalism. I, I don't necessarily see that just party political politics or being a counselor is the only sole way that you can kind of shift and change things. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe Boris Johnson went from journalism to politics, didn't he? That went quite well for him. Maybe not. Maybe not so well for everybody else. Uh, yeah. Well, is you, you, you suggested I could be a potential Bristol mayor candidate at some point. So is it a case of you know watch this space, Neil? <laughs> Tell you what, you could be my Kevin Slocum. You could be my um, my press officer, couldn't you? Would you be up for doing that? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> okay, yeah. I can't promise to pay you as much as you get paid. Thank you, Afsal. Really appreciate it, and uh, all the best. And no doubt, I will bump into you uh, on St Mark's Road uh, over the next few days. Thank you, Neil, for uh, the, the opportunity. Take care. Bye, mate. Okay, finished with Afsal. Um, good conversation. Always a bit weird when you try and talk to people that you know, interview people you know, to get that balance between challenge and being matey. And I think sometimes there's a tendency to overcompensate one way or the other. Do let me know what you thought, <laughs> um, uh, if that did happen. On the issue itself, um, climate change, interesting, somebody like him. Uh, South Asian, British, Pakistani, you know, walking in quite a white middle class world, green issues. Um, that's quite a smart move, I think, from City Hall to put him in that role. And interesting, I think that um, from from him, you know, in, in the context of the actual interview itself, he was slow to get going. Afzal is a very measured, thoughtful person who thinks before he speaks. So to get him kind of out of step a bit is not easy. And to him to sort of show the human, not the politician. But he did that in the second part. I had to jump in and interrupt a bit and ruffle him up and ask a few more challenging questions. And you started to see that when he you know, got a bit more passionate. And I think that's really good. And I think my sense is he should demonstrate that a bit more in interviews because I know he's a conviction politician. I know he's passionate about the area in which we grew up. I know um, that he, you know, he believes in stuff and wants to make a change. And I think in the context of where are we at, you know, are we greenwashing? Is this PR stunt? That's what the Green Party would say, and, and critics of the City Hall. Um, but also, you know, they would say we're setting systems and mechanisms in place to springboard. There's no point in just jumping and just doing things without effective working strategy and getting the right people around the table. So these things take time if you want to make real, sustained change. So I think the jury's still out. We won't know the answers to some of the questions I asked him and where we are at in terms of reaching these targets by 2030 until a bit further down the road I think um, but it's very interesting it's, it's a big issue now isn't it you know go back five ten years and it was a side issue I think for the Labour Party 
um, contrary to what I've said about it always being embedded in that I think that it's very much pushing the forefront now you know proofs in the pudding there's um, you know good talk being done let's see if it gets followed through thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked I'm Neil Maggs and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton our audio producer Adam Cantwell Corn, our executive producer and Blue Dot for our music Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.